thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Tonight's reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Welcome tonight. It's good to have you with us, particularly if you are visiting. Let me add my welcome to Aaron's previous pancake welcome of uh, those of you who are visiting with us tonight. Uh, As Aaron said, we're uh, continuing this little series that we have done a number of times now uh, entitled Jesus in the Sydney Morning Herald, where we try to reflect from a biblical and theological perspective on things that are happening in the news. Uh, This morning, uh, I chose to do something on the environment and put off sexism because we have a lot of families in our uh, morning service, and I thought it'd be inappropriate to do so. I don't think this is going to be rated like M or anything like that, but uh, it'll be a little bit less F like for families than it will be than this morning. So uh, I just want to kind of let let put that out there at this point in time. But I couldn't really go past uh, the issue of sexism given what happened over the course of this week. If you've been following the news, these uh, ne- these kind of um, articles came up. Uh, Jamie Briggs, uh, who was um, the minister for cities and the built environment, was drinking with colleagues. As far as I can understand, this happened late last year. He was in Hong Hong Kong, had had a few drinks, he's 38, uh, married with three kids, and said to a younger female staff worker that she had piercing eyes, uh, put his arm around her and tried to kiss her, either on the neck or on the cheek, we're not exactly certain. Uh, She wasn't really impressed by that, and when she complained about it, uh, he accidentally sent a photo of her to his friends, thus breaching her privacy, Uh, and uh, then the scandal got even worse, because a journalist with News Corp, uh, Samantha Maiden reported on the Briggs indiscretion, uh, and Peter Dutton, a senior cabinet member who uh, is the Minister for Immigration, uh, uh, then called her in a text message a mad effing witch. And even leaving out the rest of that word feels wrong in church, so pardon me for that. Uh, And then sent that text message not only to his mates, but also to Samantha Maiden, about whom the description was. Uh, So there was a little bit of uh, red faces, uh, kind of half apologies, it was all just a joke, blah, 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 blah. Jamie Briggs uh, resigned, and there's calls for Peter Dutton to do the same. And then uh, earlier this week, Chris Gale, uh, a uh, strapping young man from West India, uh, well, the West Indies, rather, playing in the Big Bash League, was interviewed by Mel McLaughlin on the sidelines just after he'd gotten out. And uh, she, he said to her that he, I wanted to come and have an interview with you as well. That's the reason why I'm here, just to see your eyes for the first time. It's nice. As McLaughlin began appearing visibly uncomfortable, Gail continued, so hopefully we can win this game and we can have a drink afterwards. Don't blush, baby. To which she replied, I'm not. 
the commentators kind of laughed it off and kind of went, oh, isn't that uh, Chris Gale, an amorous fellow and whatnot? Uh, and the outcry has just been fairly significant. There was even uh, an unfortunate or at least a very awkward scene on sunrise, I believe yesterday morning, uh, when, is it Miss Universe Australia, who's like 26 and has joined the, the crew on sunrise, was embraced by her 40-something co- commentator. Uh, and then I think it was a joke, badly timed, because he then said, oh, listen, I'm not Chris Gale. Uh, but it was still just kind of inappropriate. Uh, And so if you've been following the news, if you kind of go on the Sydney Morning Herald, this topic has been front and center for most of the week. And so if we're going to do a series entitled Jesus in the Sydney Morning Herald, we can't just ignore the lead story over the course of the week. And so that's why I want to address it. Uh, When we talk about um, uh, sexism, let me just define for you what that means, because I think it's fairly helpful to know. It's essentially defined as prejudice, stereotyping, or discrimination, typically against women, uh, on the basis of sex. Now, I think, I think that if sexism were confined perhaps to the Chris Gale incident on the sidelines, we might possibly be forgiven with overlooking it. The difficulty with sexism, as you see from the words prejudice and discrimination, is that sexism then is on a scale, it's on a spectrum. And on that same spectrum are things like the objectification of women, where women are defined particularly by their sexuality, where a woman is described as, well you can probably fill in the blanks, but as just as a nice whatever, body part. Right? This is kind of the way that it, it, it's objectified. That's a very short step then to the pornography industry, which you'd have to say is not particularly empowering of women. Uh, then you go on to all sorts of acts of violence against women, starting with, shall we say, the kind of the least violent, but the, the kind of re- refusal of education for women across the world, which we don't deal with, domestic violence, sexual harassment, and rape. That's the spectrum. So when we talk about a a kind of a jest on the sideline, a don't blush baby, we're actually on the same spectrum as some pretty serious stuff. And that's why sexism becomes so critical for us to understand. Uh, And I I think that we need to kind of work out what this means then from from a theological perspective. We often kind of hear and I'll talk a bit about this in a moment, we hear a lot of the kind of the, the language against sexism from kind of a feminist perspective. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's, it's difficult for us as Christians because while we are for women, as I think will become very clear in a few minutes' time, we're not, strictly speaking, feminists. We don't see the world the same way feminists see the world. So, for instance, we don't see the Bible as a patriarchal meta-narrative uh, that is seeking to oppress women. That's not how we see the Bible. Extreme forms of feminism can see it that way. So when we're coming to this issue of sexism, I don't want to come at it from a feminist perspective or worldview. I want to come at it from a theological and biblical one, if at all possible, realizing, of course, that we have been raised in a post-feminist age, and therefore we are all, in one way, shape, or form, shaped by and formed by feminist ideology. Does that make some sense? So here's where we're going to go with this. Does that make... No? Maybe not? Okay. Tough crowd, tough crowd. Now, if you're still not exactly certain what uh, what sexism is about, Gabriel Jackson, and she's not a a Sydney Morning Herald uh, author, she's actually from The Guardian, but I figured it's a newspaper so it fits, actually had a few things to say about what sexism is in relationship to these things. So let me read a section of her article. She's not a Christian, she's a... 
she's a journalist, but that doesn't mean she's not a Christian. But I don't know that she's a person of faith. But she says this, talks about Jamie Briggs, talks about Peter Dutton, talks about Chris Gale, uh, and then actually says this as she goes. She goes, I'm in a helpful mood. So I'll make this simple by putting in list form what exactly about the above events is sexist. It's for all the men who don't know which of their kind and magnanimous actions could be interpreted as, as sexist, creepy, or inappropriate. One, telling a junior female staff member that she has piercing eyes is a sexist act. If you want to compliment a colleague, by all means tell her what great work she has been doing. Any comment on her looks is sexist. Two, Kissing a female staff member on her cheek or her neck is a sexist act. If you feel like touching a female staff member in any way, don't. Three, trying to excuse your behavior because the woman involved smiled on the evening in question is a sexist act. This is called victim blaming. Just because you are having fun with a woman and she is laughing at your jokes does not mean she wants to go home with you, wants you to kiss her, touch her, give her a compliment, or ask her out. If you are accused of acting inappropriately towards a woman and you subsequently send a photo of her to your mates, it is not respecting her privacy, it is insinuating she was asking for it, she wasn't. Fourth, calling a woman a mad <clears throat> witch is a sexist act. This should need no explanation given Australia's recent history of calling female prime ministers witches. Equally, the long history of labeling women who don't please men as mad or crazy should preclude this from even being a topic of conversation. But if you really don't understand, she actually references another article that might help you make sense of that. Five, asking a journalist out during an interview is a sexist act. It's an interview, not a nightclub, as Cricket Australia boss James Sutherland uh, pointed out. A woman working in her professional capacity deserves to have her questions answered in a professional manner. Calling a woman baby in a professional setting is a sexist act. Unless you are in a relationship with a woman, it's probably a good idea to avoid calling her baby, babes, darling, sweetheart, petal, floss, or love. Making light of or dismissing sexist acts is a sexist act. Here's a tip. If you witness a colleague being humiliated in public, don't tell her to walk away, laugh it off, or make a joke out of it. Call out the sexism. Don't comment on her bright red cheeks or tell her to stand next to you instead. Don't ever ask a woman to adjust her behavior to avoid sexist acts. Step in to stop the sexist act. If you're still having trouble figuring out what's sexist or inappropriate behavior, there's a pretty simple test available to all and it takes a mere second. It goes like this. Would you do or say this to a male colleague? If the answer is no, then what you're about to do is probably sexist. She says, it is obscene that in 2016 I feel it necessary to write this list. But the excuses, the apologies, the deleted tweets, the vitriol proved that it is. So, this is sexism. Prejudice, stereotyping, or discrimination typically against women based on the basis of sex. Now, one of the things that perhaps jumps out at you at that definition is that men are also stereotyped, right? If you watch any sort of the uh, typical sitcoms, married men in particular are morons, all of them. Uh, they're, they're all complete and utter idiots. You think to yourself, well, there, there there's, there's sexism against men. Uh, and there's a very interesting article, again, this one by uh, Casey Edwards, and uh, if you want to bring up this next photo. Uh, she talks about reverse sexism. Here's what she has to say. And I'll, I'll just read this for you. Again, I don't think she's a person of faith, but what, how she says it is, is I, think, I think, quite telling. 
She says, rise up, poor downtrodden men who have long suffered under the totalitarian regime of feminism. The day to reclaim your inalienable right to pervert chicks without being judged is at hand. You now have the slam dunk, silver bullet, gold, gold argument of arguments to justify your ogling. Women do it too. And now there's evidence, video evidence to prove it. I refer, of course, to the unnamed woman in a blue shirt looking at UFC fighters during their weigh-in in Las Vegas in December of last year. When the video went viral over the past couple of days, cries of double standards, reverse sexism, and poor me echoed around the internet as angry men took to YouTube and the comment sections of websites to vent about the woman's perving. Well, when I say perving, I don't mean the fist-pumping, ogling of men. On the YouTube video that's now been viewed over 1.7 million times and generated just as much debate, the woman in question is seen glancing in the direction of the fighters, standing less than a meter away from her as they remove their clothes. Seriously, people, where else was she going to look? And where were the thousands of people in the audience also looking? According to some reports, the woman on stage was simply doing her job, checking that the fighters weren't carrying or concealing anything during their weigh-in. But nonetheless, this video has been used as proof, proof that men have been wronged yet again. If it was a man, you'd have some feminist calling for his head, cried one revolutionary. For one man, it was the last straw. Frankly, I'm sick to death of women thinking they can treat men in the workplace as mere sex objects, only there for their visual and physical gratification. Jamie Briggs, anyone? How about Chris Gale? Sure. The public reaction to the woman perving at the fighters, and let's assume for the moment that she was in fact perving, would have been different if she was a man checking out a woman. But that's because it's different. Like most things in life, context is important. Firstly, the woman in question is looking. She's not yelling filthy statements or a la Chris Gale taking advantage of a live national TV audience to embarrass the guy. She's looking. And while we're on Chris Gale's comments, these are set against the backdrop of prevailing sexist attitudes towards women's place in sport. Women are frequently told they have no place in the arena outside of grid girls and cheerleaders. The issue is not just about whether or not it's sexist to flirt, it's about undermining, yet again, a woman's professionalism by turning her into eye candy. When a male boss or colleague stares at a woman's breasts instead of her presentation, her work and professional credibility is undermined. How often are men reduced to nothing more than sex objects where their worth as people or professionals is based entirely on how bedworthy they are? Not often, I'd say. Secondly, a man isn't killed or seriously maimed by a woman every single week. Despite what men's rights groups might pretend, men are almost always the perpetrators of gendered violence. With this in mind, when a man ogles at a woman, it's reasonable for her to feel violated, threatened, and often fear for her safety. Even the most tragic men's right activist would have difficulty arguing that the UFC fighters felt threatened by the young woman's gaze. In the, if the day ever comes when women no longer fear being raped and sexually assaulted by men, when women are not hired, fired, and promoted based on their looks, when women's worth is no longer reduced to their hotness, then 
and only then can we talk about reverse sexism. So while it is true that men are also stereotyped as women are stereotyped, we do not, as men, experience the same level of prejudice or discrimination or even the same level of stereotyping wrapped around sexuality as women do. It is different. And because men have a position of power within the culture, it does change the context of those sorts of stereotypical statements. So when we're talking about sexism, we are talking about that which typically happens to women. So we can't talk about reverse sexism until, as she points out, women are no longer afraid of being raped or sexually assaulted in our world, no longer hired and fired over their looks. When that happens, then we can talk. But until that day comes, I think we need to grapple with this as it stands before us. So this is the issue. This is the groundwork. And again, I don't want to approach this from some sort of feminist ideological perspective. I actually want to address this from a biblical and theological one. Because for each one of us, that's the perspective that is so critical for us as we learn what it means to follow after Jesus. As we engage with our world as disciples of Jesus, we need to be able to think biblically and, be, and think theologically about what we face in order that we can address and engage what we encounter most effectively. So I want to give you a couple of kind of, I guess, pieces of framework to begin to think about this issue in a particular way and to suggest a few ways that we might be able to go forward on this as well. And let me begin by talking a bit about the creation. I'll get to the passage in Ephesians chapter 5 in a, in a little while. But let me begin with creation. Uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, we are told that God created humanity. He created humanity in his image. He didn't create men in his image and then create women later. Uh, that language of image bearing is not actually found in chapter 2 when God forms Adam out of the dirt and then forms the woman out of one of his ribs. In Genesis chapter 1, when it speaks about humanity being image bearers, it says that God created humanity in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. Which means that when we talk about the image of God, it is, shall we say, equally distributed between men and women. Men are not image bearers and women are image bearers of men. Men and women are both image bearers of God himself. And while none of us are God in our fullness and none of us are fully like him, the image that we bear is equal. And so while men and women are different in obvious sorts of ways, our position before God is the same. And that's true then when we talk about all the things that are important theologically. So when we come to the issue of sin, are women more sinful than men? Good luck arguing that they are. Are, 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 are men more sin, sinful than women? Can you actually judge that? Is a gender more sinful than another? Is one gender closer to God than the other just kind of by definition? And, well, I would hope that you know enough about the Bible to know that that's, well, poor theology. Because at the end of the day, humanity, male and female, are implicated in the fall. Uh, the role of Eve in taking the fruit of the tree of no the knowledge of good and evil does not lead to her re kind of receiving special sinner status. Uh, God nowhere says, and women, being much more sinful than men, shall blah, 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 blah. Sin has equally affected men and women. Which means when Jesus died to redeem us, he has redeemed 
men and women equally. In fact, I think it's really significant that while Jesus came to earth as a man, he was physically a man, he died to rescue everything about us that is essentially human. Which means that issues of sexuality and gender, as important as they are to us, are not the telling essential features of our humanity. There's something that is essentially human that Jesus took up. He took everything that was sinful, everything that was affected by the fall. And interestingly, while it also included our physical bodies, it wasn't gendered per se. And he accomplished for us salvation that is equal for men and women. When the Spirit was poured out in accordance with the prophecy in Joel, in the Old Testament book, the Spirit was poured out on men and women Maid servants and, and old men and the whole bit, everyone's having dreams and stuff. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. Men do not have more of the spirit than women. Women don't have more of the spirit than men. That's not the way it works. None of the lists of gifts that Paul talks about as being given to the church are gendered. He never says, now the spirit has given gifts to the church. There's some men's gifts and there's some women's gifts. Women's gifts are in the kitchen and men's gifts are preaching doesn't say that. He says these are the gifts that are given to the church, to the church made up of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor. Paul says those categories have all been not erased in Christ. He doesn't say that you stop being Jewish or you stop being rich or you stop being a woman when you become, uh, be, when you become a Christian, but those things are no longer meant to divide us. That the distinction socially and economically between Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, are now taken down in Christ and we are able to be united in him. This is a really critical statement. Now I hope that none of what I've just said surprises you. I hope that you didn't think that men were less sinful than women or that somehow women's salvation was a bigger deal than men's salvation or that somehow the Holy Spirit was given in different drips and drabs to people based on their gender. Because if you did, you need to read your Bible a little bit more carefully. So there is a fundamental and essential equality that we share. So while men and women are different, we, we are different. Now, how much of that's nature and how much of that's nurture, you can argue about that later on. But our essential humanity, we are equal. This is why, in, in, in our wider context, of course, that so much of our world, even our secular humanist society, seeks to bring equality in the world. Because fundamentally, our world says that ethnicity and culture and race is not something that separates people on equality. You, you can't get away with that stuff anymore, unless you're in some sort of strange fascist group, right? I mean, to say that the Anglo race is superior to other races is not just offensive, it's downright wrong. To say that men are somehow superior to women or women superior to men is not just offensive, it's wrong. And not just from a, a kind of philosophical perspective, but from a biblical one. For us, what we see when we see men and women is we see people who have been created in the image of God, equally honorable, equally affected by sin, equally saved, equally, if they place faith in Christ, filled with the Spirit. That's a really powerful place for us to stand, and a really quite important one for us as well. There's implications for how we treat, not just men and women, but how we treat children and the aged, 
how we treat those who may have various needs, learning difficulties or physical handicaps of one sort or another. It has to do with how we treat other races. It has to do with how we treat those who are very wealthy and those who are very poor. And notice again that it doesn't come from some sort of philosophical construction. It comes from what we believe scripture has to say about the essential fundamental equality of all people. Because all of us have been created in the image of God. It's a fairly powerful place to stand, isn't it? Uh, and so I'm supposing that you've already guessed where we land on the whole sexism issue. Right? We'll get to the conclusion. I hate to ruin the ending before we get there, but you probably know it already. I think there's also something that's fairly helpful for us to recognize as, in this as well. There's two things, I suppose. The first is that one of the places that sexism, at least in our context, often lives, hides, is disguised, camouflages itself, is in humor. So in Australia, we tend not to see the extreme forms of uh, discrimination and prejudice against women. Right? Any public school takes young boys and young girls in unless it's kind of a you know, single gender school. Right? But uh, you can't kind of go to school and say, this is my daughter, and they say, well, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't teach girls here. That doesn't work. We don't, we don't have those extreme forms. Right? There's still discrimination. There's still prejudice. Right? Uh, but we don't ex experience those extreme ones. We often find it in the kind of Chris Gale comments. Right? Just kind of having a bit of fun. And in Australia, if you haven't picked this up yet, uh, if you don't have a sense of humor, you are in all sorts of trouble, aren't you? Socially, if you are not able to laugh at yourself or laugh at a situation, and we are very informal as a culture, very informal, and this becomes really problematic. Don't blush, baby, and we have a laugh. And if people go, oh, that's sexist, what's the response? It was just a joke. It was just a joke. Now that's really, really hard in Australia. That's really hard in Australia. It's hard enough in other parts of the world because other parts of the world do have a sense of humor, not quite as dark or sarcastic as ours, but they do have one, right? So in other parts of the world, and we know this is true here, even a joke, sometimes a joke can be more cutting than a, than a word spoken in anger, can't it? Sometimes jokes are not funny at all. And when a joke is not funny, it is so hard to get out, isn't it? Because to show that you've been hurt by words that were said in jest is in Australia to suggest that you're not really up for social interaction. If you can't have a laugh at yourself, come on, get a grip. Who do you think you are? Which makes sexism for us incredibly difficult. And I think that's worth noting. Because one of the places we will encounter it most frequently is in jokes, in jest. That's one of the places it lives all the time. And so how we grapple with that will actually be very, very important. If I can have a quick look at that passage in Ephesians, if you have your Bibles with you. There's a few aspects within this that I think are quite significant in terms of what uh, Paul has to say. Uh, one of the things that he says in verse 3 he says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Now, one of the places that sexism often lives as well is in the objectification of women. Uh, there's often an overt sexuality wrapped around it. And so we need to be very careful not only about joking, but also about this hint of sexual immorality. 
He goes on to say, uh, or, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, which would be another topic altogether, because these are improper for the Lord's people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. He begins this little section at the start of chapter 5 by saying, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You just can't really imagine Jesus saying the words that Chris Gale said, can you? The woman at the well comes up and Jesus says, don't blush, baby. It doesn't fit, does it? It just doesn't work. For obvious reasons. Jesus lived in a far more patriarchal society than we do. One that was pre-feminist in lots and lots of ways. Where women did not have anywhere near the same rights that they have in our day and age. Where their equality was probably a little bit more up for grabs. And it's therefore very significant that Jesus treated the women that he interacted with with tremendous respect and enormous kindness and compassion. So the woman in the well in John chapter 4 is a, is a really telling story. You might remember the story. Jesus is, it's the middle of the day. He sits down at the well. His disciples go into town. And this woman comes out to, to draw water. She'd been married several times. You can imagine how that went down in a small town where everyone knew everyone and everyone's dirt. That would have been pretty pleasant. Some scholars suggest that the reason she came out in the middle of the day is that she couldn't bear to come out in the morning when the other women would generally come out because of just the social stigma that was associated with her. Whatever the case, though, Jesus stuns her by asking for a drink, not only because he's Jewish and she's Samaritans and they didn't get on particularly well at all, but because she's a woman and he's a Jewish rabbi. And yet he engages with her in a very significant way. The woman who comes up behind him with the bleed in the crowd and touches his garment and then is fearful when she finds out that she's been healed and Jesus stops, he turns and hears her story and then says, daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. Of the Syrophoenician woman, someone outside of the Jewish faith who comes to him to beg that he might heal her daughter, Jesus speaks to her as he spoke to his disciples. He spoke in parables. He spoke a word to her that was wrapped in, in the mystery of the parable, believing that she had enough faith and enough intelligence and all that to get it. He treated her exactly as he treated everyone else that he interacted with. And lo and behold, the seed of the gospel bore fruit in her life in that little interaction. And so if we were to follow God's example, if we were to follow the example and law of love as Jesus loved those around us, then we too ought to be people who show great deal of not only respect and kindness, but also protection and care, particularly of the women in our lives. And that leads me, I suppose, to what can we do? Uh, and there are a number of things that I would like to say that we, could, we can do. Uh, I... I the nature of these sorts of services means that we're kind of, you're kind of working on the sermon during the week, but I thought it would be really significant if we'd had a longer build-up to actually find a few women who'd be willing to share some of their experiences of sexism in case you were unconvinced of its existence in our world. We don't have the time to do that, and I'm not sure that I want to go open mic on that one at this point in time. Uh, but this is a real deal for us. And while women, I think, need to, the women amongst us do need to stand up uh, and, and, and say that that's not right, that that's not okay. The things that I have to say are primarily spoken to the men amongst us. Not because you're stronger or better or any of those sorts of things, but simply because men often hold the positions of power. 
Uh, men are often the perpetrators of sexism all the way through that other spectrum of stuff that we just don't want to talk about much. And therefore, as men, we often have, I think, a bigger responsibility to step into, if that makes some sense. So I don't want to disempower women in this whole thing by any stretch of the imagination, but I think one of the ways that we can speak into this, is, of course, is by responding whenever we can. I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to resist sexism wherever we find it. And there's a couple of ways that we can do that, of course, and this is for both men and women, isn't it? Uh, some of our May Mission Month projects, I can't remember what year anymore, but we, spent, uh, we sent some money overseas to assist in uh, the building of toilets, uh, which was fundamental for young women being able to go to school and remain in school. Uh, that's a way in which we resist sexism, prejudice and discrimination and stereotyping against women overseas. That's one way that we can be involved. But here at home, I think we need to take other stands. I think for women, it's a matter of calling out sexism when, when you have experienced it or when other women around you experience that. And for men, I think even more significantly, you need to resist sexism as well. Uh, you need to resist that. You need to call people out. You need to say that things aren't funny if they're not funny. Uh, and, and, and live with the social consequences of people saying that you have no sense of humor. Because there will be a social consequence there. I think we need to be very careful of our humor. I think it's very easy to kind of laugh this stuff off or make comments that ultimately are stereotypical and therefore disempowering in a particular way. I'll talk more about that in a moment. If you're going to compliment people, and I think this goes for men and women, uh, but in particular men of women, compliment them on their character. Uh, that the, one of the articles talked about, you know, if you're going to compliment a colleague, by all means compliment her on her work. And I think that's true just in life. Uh, one of the books that I read when Amaris was born uh, was a book called uh, Growing Strong Daughters, I think it was. And uh, one of the pieces of research within it was, ta was talking about young boys and girls and how young boys were often praised for how physical they were, how fast they were, how high they could jump, and girls were praised for how nice their hair was and how pretty their eyes were. And so Nicole and I have tried the best we can, because we have gorgeous daughters as well, so it's hard not to praise them on their beauty, uh, but to try to say to them as well that we value things about them that, that aren't related to their physical looks, their strength, their ability to run, the way they can think, the way that they interact with people, character aspects that aren't going to change over time. And I think that's a really important thing for us to do even in the body of Christ, because it's a helpful way for us to think about other people, isn't it? To actually look to people and not just be complimenting on certain things that will change over time, but complimenting on character, complimenting them on things that will last, things that are important for us as disciples and followers of Jesus. I think we need to try to the best of our ability to advocate, advocate against the objectification of women. Women are objectified in all sorts of ways. Uh, and sexuality is, particularly, is the most particular one of those. And the examples are so prevalent and prominent, we don't even notice them. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of Melinda Tankard Reist. Uh, she heads up Collective Shout. Uh, has anyone seen her presentation on the objectification of women? About a third of you. She gets up and she does this whole kind of piece about the sexualization of, of young women in our, in our world. And the thing, that is what, the thing that I found most disturbing about that is she shows, I don't know, dozens of images, dozens of images. And the thing that I found most disturbing in all of that is that I had seen every single one of those images, more or less. 
None of them were from porn mags. None of them were from kind of raunchy magazines. None of them were from kind of M or R-rated movies. They were things that I see at Miranda Fair, things that I see in the newspaper, things that kind of pop up on the Sydney Morning Herald website. It was just stunning in a very bad sense. Just to realize how often I walk past the objectification of women. The examples she used were so ordinary, it was distressing. Uh, she said, and this is one of the article, one of the articles quoted this as well, I forget who, who said it, but the standard you walk past is the standard that you support. We need to be those who stop walking past those sorts of standards, which will also be fairly countercultural, particularly for the men amongst us, uh, and that will become fairly important. I think finally, I think we can educate ourselves. I think one of the things, you know, that, that article, which is kind of tongue-in-cheek about here's why those things were creepy, inappropriate, or sexist, is kind of helpful. Because when you think about sexism, you can often think about either extreme forms and miss the fact that we can often be complicit in sexist actions and attitudes without even really knowing it. Uh, for women, you probably experience this sort of stuff fairly clearly. You probably have a fairly good working definition of sexism in your life. For men, because we tend not to experience it apart from the occasional stereotypical kind of old stupid guy in a television sitcom, we are not so clear on it. So can I encourage you to do a little bit of educational work, to do some reading, to think about this? Because as the people of God, as the people of faith, from a theological and biblical perspective, we cannot stand for this. Not because we're feminists, uh, not because we're you know, kind of party poopers who have no sense of humor, because we believe that men and women have been created in the image of God, in full equality. And therefore, that ought to be reflected in how we think. It ought to be reflected in how we treat others. It ought to be reflected in how and what we stand up for and what we stand against. And these sorts of, again, this sort of thinking is not just for something like sexism, or as I spoke about this morning on the environment. Now these, this sort of thinking is what we need to be doing with everything that we engage with. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be able to think biblically and theologically about all the stuff that we encounter so that we can engage our world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is first and foremost good news. It's good news for men. It's good news for women. It's good news for children. It's good news for old people. It's good news for those who are handicapped or experience some other disability. It's good news for all cultures and all races and all languages and all creeds. It is good news. And it ought to influence and reflect everything that we do. So there you go. Sexism in an evening. I don't think I've given you all the answers, but hopefully I've provided a bit of a framework to begin to think about this a little bit more significantly. I have no idea what Drew is going to be speaking about next week. Neither does he. Uh, but uh, watch the City Morning Herald and find out. See if you can guess beforehand what it is that he'll be speaking on or what you want him to speak on. Send suggestions. He, he can ignore them and pick what he likes. Uh, let me take a moment to pray as Ryan and Cassie come and lead us in a couple of songs uh, as we finish our service and worship. So will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you uh, for your wonderful and marvelous uh, creation. And this morning we reflected on the, the wonder and beauty of the environment and uh, the stewardship that you had given to us and had read from Psalm 8 uh, 
where the psalmist declares that as we look at the wonders of the world, it's just stupendous that you would think much of us at all, let alone give us stewardship over your planet. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that, and we thank you for uh, the just wondrous diversity that we experience as human beings. Uh, we come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Uh, we come from all sorts of different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities. We come from all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds. We have all sorts of diverse experiences. And we are also people who come in two different genders. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful diversity that we experience. And at the same time, thank you that we are nonetheless equal before you. That we are no more or less sinful than those around us on the basis of our gender or background or position in life that we are no less or no more saved on those same basis, and that the Spirit has been given to us freely and in overwhelming generosity. I pray that for each one of us, whether it's in how we deal with sexism in our workplaces or in our friend groups or at our schools, that we might be those who stand for that equality, whose actions and attitudes reflect what you have done for us in creating us, in saving us, and in empowering us with your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we might be bearers of good news to the world, the good news of Jesus Christ, good news for all. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen.